I have heard that it's said that worship is a lot like an airplane trip. Um, a few years ago, I was uh, in Pittsburgh, and I was getting on an airplane there, and um, I, I sat about halfway back, and I got seated, and there were still a lot of people coming in, and I, I just sat there and, and watched people as they came on the plane. Some people were very disinterested. They, well, some were in, you know, absorbed in a laptop or in some, you know, smartphone, and others just kind of just sat and waited for what was going to take place, blankly staring ahead. Some looked out the window, um, but there was one man that I'll never forget. He was an older man. And for whatever re- and probably this wasn't even legal, I don't know, but forever, for whatever reason, the po- this was his very first flight. He had never flown before. And he was with his grown daughter and her husband, and, and they were taking him somewhere. And so when he came on, somehow they had some kind of an arrangement, and the pilot asked him to step up into the cockpit. And I watched him as he went in there, and he showed him all these dials and all these instruments, and... And as he came back to his seat, his daughter was sitting to my right, just a couple rows behind me. Before, he was 10 rows still up the plane, and he was saying, look what he gave me. He had gotten some wings, some of those golden wings, and he was yelling to his daughter before he even got seated with them, look what he gave me. He gave me these wings. It was just like a little child would do. He was so full of enthusiasm. And that, in many ways, is like our worship, is it not? Every Sunday, we have people who come in, and they sit down, and they stare blankly. Or they try to look out a window. We've built church buildings with the windows up high, so that that helps that problem a little bit. But there are people who just really have no purpose. They're just waiting to get to the next place. But then there are people who long for something more than that. They long for an encounter with God that strengthens them, that encourages them, that helps them to go through the next week and to live their life in a way that would be pleasing to God. There are two kinds of people that often assemble it at church on Sunday mornings. And I think that all of us would admit that we would love to be in the category of the one who is not just content. Contentment's not a bad thing. I'm not knocking contentment. But wouldn't it be great if we had the enthusiasm of one who has stood in the presence of the pilot? That's what we need in our worship. We need people, and we probably all long for those situations when after I have been to worship, I leave this place energized, enthused, because I have been in the presence of God. That's what genuine, true worship is about. And we need to to accomplish that. We come here with a task every week to worship God. It is a task. It is a privilege, but it doesn't just happen. It It involves the intent, it involves purpose, and it involves work to keep from being distracted about other things. But I want to share with you a few things this morning that I think will help us to move beyond the rote, the ritual, the mundane, and make worship the kind of experience 
that it ought to be that strengthens us as well as gives glory to God. There is and has always been a tension between worship and routine. That is nothing new. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back to Malachi chapter 1 and verse 13. And the prophet Malachi, the Lord speaking through him, he said, you know, God has a few things against you and they couldn't even see it. They were saying, when have we done this or that? Where have we offended you? And one of the things about which God took offense by the people or at the people that lived in the days of Malachi was that they had made worship a weariness. Ah, worship. Oh, it's time for that again. Worship had become a weariness to them, and God took notes, and he was offended by it. Could there be some today that do, do you ever get weary with worship? Oh, it's Sunday. Oh, great. Tomorrow I've got to get, uh, or Wednesday night. Man, I'm so tired this week. I, I can't believe it. It's, it's time. We've we got to get ready. Is worship a weariness to you? It, it shouldn't be. Worship, and I've often said this, worship, you know, I'll hear people say, oh, it's Wednesday night, we have church tonight, we have Bible study tonight, and I've had such a hard week, and, and they act like they resent that they have to get ready and, and go. Why can't we have a, a situation that exists where when I've had a bad week, I say, oh, great, it's Wednesday, I've had a terrible week, I'm glad it's Wednesday because I can meet together with saints and be strengthened. Maybe that's a testimony to the fact that we don't have our hearts right. And maybe it's a testimony, too, at the fact that maybe what we're doing has not been thought out well enough to give people the strength and encouragement that they need. But Malachi, in the days of Malachi, there is a time when worship had become a weariness. But... You turn to Psalm 122 and verse 1, and you hear David say, Oh, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. David was eager. He was glad when it was time for him to go to worship. And so you have two different perspectives, even in the Old Testament days concerning worship. Some saw it as a weariness. Others saw it as, oh, a time of renewal. Those two positions still exist today. We struggle with both, do we not? I want to be like David who says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. But sometimes I'm like the people in Malachi and I see worship as a weariness. I look at Coy Finger here this morning. He's been away and before, you know, he's been out for some time now with, with some health issues and Today's the first day he's been back to church. And I saw him in the hall as he came in, and we were talking, and he said, I just couldn't stay away. I had to be here. And that's, that's the kind of attitude we want to have. Uh, there are people, I've seen people, you've seen people and known people who have health issues that, well, if you needed an excuse, that would pass. It would do. But they didn't want an excuse. They wanted a way to be able to be with God's people and to worship him. John 4 and verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit 
and in truth. We have to have two parts done right. We, we can't just get up and routinely and rotely go through true things and act in true ways and act in harmony with God's will without any kind of inner engagement of our spirits. Jesus said, you, you have to have a spirit that is engaged in what you're doing as well as truth. And so that's the struggle and that's the tension. But I think, again, the Bible has an answer to every problem that we face. And, and I want us to point to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 6. If you have your Bible there, we'll spend the rest of the time there. So go ahead and turn there to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll talk about some things that from this passage that I think will help us to engage in worship that is not rote and mundane and routine, but it is meaningful and encouraging and true to the Word of God, pleasing to God, and beneficial to ourselves. Let's go ahead and read just the first six or eight verses of this chapter. Isaiah has a vision. And he sees a vision of God on his throne, and uh, he's present before God. And there's some things said in this chapter that I think we need to be reminded of from time to time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, have you ever seen um, ladies, as they get married, they have a robe and they'll have a train, you know, following their dress and gown. And I've seen, you know, some that go out a good ways. I've never seen one that filled a whole temple. I mean, the glory of this, he's trying to get across. The, the train of the robe of God fills this whole place. Keep reading. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. As we talk about worship, I think this vision that was given to Isaiah should help to inspire us and to remind us what worship should be. He's brought into the presence of God, and that's what we're here today to do, to enter into the presence of God and to express our praise and adoration to Him for who He is, not just simply for what He's done, but for who He is. And Before we get into the points, let me just remind you of one other thing. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 33, when Cornelius called for Peter and Peter came, Cornelius said to Peter, all right, we're all here, present before God, 
to hear what the Lord has commanded you. I want you to note what Cornelius said. We are present here before God. If your idea of worship is that you come and you are a spectator in what a preacher does or a spectator in what the song leader does, you have the wrong mind concerning worship. You are present and God is the spectator. The participant doesn't stand up here. The participants are every one of us. And rather than you standing back and judging and critiquing how things are done up here, I hope to remind you that behind your shoulder is a God of heaven looking at you and critiquing you as you critique others. You're a participant this morning in this event, not because uh, you're not just because you're, you're sitting down there and not standing up here. We're all participants. With that in mind, let's see what we can learn from Isaiah chapter 6. First of all, the first point that I think we learn is that when there are some legitimate expectations of worship, and one of those expectations is that we should expect to experience a sense of God's presence. When we worship God, we are coming into the presence of God. This is not a ball game. This is not a school play or performance. This is not a band uh, concert or a piano recital. It's not a fellowship, a social gathering. We have come here to, re- to approach the God of heaven. This is no flippant thing. This is the one who created all that there is. Have you ever not just looked at the stars at night on some summer day when it's clear and you look up and you see the vastness of the universe and when you realize that this is just some small little corner, there are galaxies, hundreds and hundreds of thousands more galaxies out there. This is the God we serve is huge. And the fact that he would allow me to come into his presence and petition him is just amazing. I, I think of John as he writes in 1 John when he said, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I can't believe that God would bless me with that honor, that I could be called one of his children. Imagine that. When we come to worship, we come into the presence of God, and we need to have... And listen, if our worship is so flippant and irreverent that I miss the fact that God is here, then we need to fix that. If I am so hustled and bustled and trying to get things all together so that I come in here just in a frantic and sit down and go, and we've all been there, And I know things are exceptions rather than the rule. But if that's the rule for our life, I think we need to make some changes. We need to prepare for this meeting. Listen, I dare say if you were taking the law exam or if you were taking, uh, you know, your ACT or SAT to get into college, the night before wouldn't be the night you stayed out till 3 o'clock in the morning. You would prepare for that. We have an appointment with God today. It's an appointment that is serious enough that we should prepare for. And if we haven't prepared adequately, then we're not 
grasping the sense of God's presence and what we're coming here to do. A second thing that this passage teaches me is that we should be humbled by our own sinfulness when we come before God. When Isaiah sees this throne room and he he hears the voice and the the pillars of the temple shake and, and there's smoke billowing out and when he sees all this, he says, what was me? I am undone. I don't belong here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm in deep trouble. I'm in the presence of God. If we come to worship unaware of our sinfulness, if we come to worship and view God as our equal, and we don't have the kind of reverence and respect for Him that we should have, realizing how sinful we are and how holy He is, then we're not going to have a meaningful worship. Worship ought to remind me of how sinful I am in the presence of God. God is light. And you know what happens when you have light? Light exposes darkness. You can have a shirt. And if you have you ever gotten dressed in the dark and you have a shirt in, in the closet and it looks clean maybe? And then you put it on and you get to work and you went, oh, there's a big spot. I didn't see that. You, you got dressed in the dark. But the light exposes it. Listen, when we're in the presence of God, we can't help but feel exposed because He is so holy. He is light. And I'll tell you something else. When you find a person who acts as though and maybe even talks as though they've got their act together and that they are one holy person. That person hasn't been around God very much. Now, contrary to what they may say, if that person is close to God, he'll see his, his uncleanness. He'll see his spots and his blemishes. The closer we are to God and the light of God, our weaknesses Our foibles, our sins are exposed. And we can be nothing less than humbled. Another thing that this passage teaches me is that it reminds me of God's grace. In spite of the fact that I am a man of unclean lips and I come into the presence of a holy God and I stand before Him, He doesn't exterminate me. He doesn't shoo me away. He offers cleansing. He offers forgiveness. He offers grace. Isaiah had an angel come to him and take uh, a coal off of a hot fire, and you can imagine that glowing red, and, and he touches his lips with it, and he says, now you're clean. You know, you say you're a man of unclean lips. Well, God has the answer to that, and he's cleansed, and he stands in God's presence. Worship should remind me that not only am I so unworthy, but God is so good because He forgives me anyway. He loves me in spite of my sin. There's a passage in John chapter 1. We often refer to that passage to talk about the deity of Jesus and some of the things dealing with creation and so forth. But in verse 16, there's an impressive statement made about the character of God's grace or the, the nature of God's grace. That passage says that of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. 
accumulated grace. God, in other words, God isn't stingy. He, he does, you don't just barely get by and barely get forgiven with God. You're not on the verge of God saying, eh, I don't know, I, you've just been too bad this week, and, and Him withholding from you. We receive the fullness of God, grace upon grace. He piles it on so that it covers all of our sin. We just sang this song, God's grace, marvelous grace. Grace that can pardon. That, that's the kind of grace that God has extended to us. I'm reminded of that when I come to worship. A man who is sinful and who pales in comparison and in the presence of God. But yet God forgives. He allows this to take place because He's gracious. And then finally, we should leave a worship with the intent that I'm going to serve this God who is so good. In verses 6 through 7, or verse 8, um, God asked the question, Who will go for me? Who, who will I send? How could Isaiah, who was standing in the presence of God and who is unworthy in and of himself, but has been forgiven so much, how can he stand in the presence of God and ask God, who has done so much for him, to listen to God say, who can I count on? How could he keep quiet? Couldn't. He said, here am I, send me. I'll go for you. I'll do whatever it is that you need to do. And that's what worship, as we come together to worship God, and as we come into his presence, we sense how great he is, how, how unworthy we are. And yet he forgives us. How can I tell him no? The, the, the one who has kept me from a devil's hell throughout all eternity and not just re- rewarded me with mundaneness throughout all eternity, but has promised me a heavenly home. How can I tell that man no? I won't do it. I'm going to live for myself. The key to worship that changes your life, that strengthens you, that empowers you to go out this week and live the kind of holy life that God would have you to live, it's summed up right here in this text. When when we realize that as we assemble here today, we are coming into the presence of God, we have an appointment with the God of this universe. And as we stand in His presence, we see His greatness, but... His greatness just exposes my frailties. Don't justify yourself. Don't try to pretend. Acknowledge it. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. And because God is a gracious God, He'll forgive you. And because He's forgiven us, how can we do anything else but go live for Him and do whatever it is that He may ask of us to do. Worship is first and foremost about God. It is not about, give, it's not about receiving. It's about giving. It's not about entertainment. It is about holiness and acknowledging the, the presence of a glorious, awesome, 
God. When we realize that, and when we give ourselves to this, we'll discover that we too, kind of as a side benefit, we too have been blessed and strengthened. My worship is directed to God. That's the reason we are here. But as a side benefit that flows from that or overspills from that, I'm strengthened. I'm renewed. I'm encouraged to go on. Friends, there is nothing so central to Christianity. Nothing so central, excuse me, to Christianity can lose its meaning while the cause of Christ continues to thrive. We cannot do this wrong and expect the cause of Christ just to take off. This is something that is central. We are called to worship, to pay homage to Christ. And I'll say this too, and we'll close. For worship to be the kind of meaningful experience that we want it to be, what needs to change are not the externals. It's the heart of each one of us. I think we've missed that. I think there are a lot of things going on right now um, that brethren are misguided. They think they've got to do some things differently from an external perspective to get the kind of feeling that they need. But that's not where the feeling should originate. It should originate from your heart. If I were attending the funeral of someone that I love deeply, you wouldn't have to dim the lights to set me in the mood. That's not necessary. You wouldn't have to have some kind of band in the background or some kind of special thing going on to, to get me to feel in the mood. Those things are unnecessary. That's not what it's all. I, listen, if I love that person, I don't need any externals. I know what the situation's about. And if my heart is what it should be, I'll come away from that with the kind of feelings that I ought to have. The answer to worship problems is not what can we do externally to to jazz things up, to get people more emotional. That's, That's not it. That is shallow. The answer is to change your heart. Remember why you're here and who you are and who He is and what He's called you to do. And that'll change you. And that will give meaning to the event that we are trying to master. I want to be like David, not like the folks in the days of Malachi. I don't want worship to be a a weariness to me. And if it is that, then worship becomes something that is hard and, and you have to drag yourself to do. And you have to be drugged to do it. Who wants to live a life like that? If you can get your arms around what worship should be, you won't have to be drugged. You'll be like David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. If you're here this morning and you've not yet obeyed the gospel of Christ, why don't you make that decision today? Give your life to him. He's a great God who in spite of your sin will forgive you. And because of that, You're indebted. Live for Him. If you haven't been baptized, why don't you do that this morning? If you're a child of God already but unfaithful, and it's time to to get some things right, 
and get back where you need to be to change your hearts. We'll pray with you to that end if you'll come as we stand together and sing.